welcome back to another episode of Maryland's Politics and Policy Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Leatherberry. Today, we'll be talking about gun violence prevention with Liz Bannock of Marylanders to Prevent Gun Violence. When many of us encounter gun violence, it's at arm's length. While we are privy to the nightly news documenting a homicide within our community or a national headline telling us of another mass shooting, the majority of Marylanders don't experience gun violence firsthand. In 2018, Maryland had two shootings that made national headlines at Great Mills High School in March and the Capitol Gazette paper in June. On an almost daily basis, Maryland's urban areas, specifically Baltimore, experience homicides by firearms at a rate that has ranked the state 10th in the U.S. In short, Maryland is not immune to the consequences of gun violence. Firearms account for 72% of homicides nationwide, and while the number of firearm homicides have decreased in recent years, the rate of suicide by firearm has steadily risen in the past two decades. Although the public gun debate is often polarized and narrow, some organizations are taking a practical approach to preventing gun violence. Statistically, it has been shown that firearm regulation through legislation shows a reduction in gun deaths and aids in prevention of suicides and homicides by firearms. One such organization in Maryland is Marylanders to Prevent Gun Violence. Here to explain more about gun violence prevention in Maryland is Liz Bannock, executive. Here to explain more about gun violence prevention in Maryland is Liz Bannock, executive director of Marylanders to Prevent Gun Violence. Thanks for joining us, Liz. Thanks so much for having me. So what is MDPGV? Uh, When did the organization begin? And what are the main priorities for your group? Um, in a nutshell, Marylanders to Prevent Gun Violence is your local state-led uh, gun violence prevention organization. We began in the early 80s when a man named Matt Fenton was shot in the head at basically point-blank uh, range in a botched robbery, and miraculously, Matt survived. Um, he basically spent quite a lot of time in the hospital in recovery, and during that time decided but he was going to make sure that the ban that, that the gun that was used in the commission of his crime um, that they used to shoot him with uh, the Saturday Night Special was banned in the state of Maryland. So he um, got together with a bunch of other young activists uh, like Finney DeMarco and Colleen Martin-Lauer and Lynn Lucci and Mike Prettle, um, and they worked on legislation to ban the Saturday Night Special in Maryland and did so successfully. And um, since that time in the 80s, we've evolved quite a bit. Um, you know, I think it's important when you talk about gun violence um, prevention to recognize that recently this has become a very big issue in our country, uh, but a lot of that attention surrounds um, violence directed against um, people I would say largely a privilege of where most of the attention is directed. And we at Marylanders to Prevent Gun Violence really try to keep the attention and the focus on um, the populations that are disproportionately affected by gun violence. And our feeling is, um, you know, we live in, Mal- in Maryland and Baltimore is uh, one of the uh, cities with the greatest rate of violence. 
Um, and we have a responsibility to address uh, the deaths of young men and women of color in the city. Um, and the other place that often doesn't get a lot of attention when we talk about these 90-plus deaths a day, and, you know, I just want your listeners to sort of, like, pause and think about that. Like, it's 90 deaths or more a day that we're talking about on average. Um, and I think if there were any other um, disease or something causing that number of deaths, we would be up in arms. And, and we really need to ask ourselves, like, are we not up in arms precisely because this is affecting individuals of, of color? Like, wh- why is it that we're not um, pushing as hard on this issue? Uh, but the but the other the other segment the other group of people that are so disproportionately affected um, are people who are using guns to commit suicide. Two thirds of those ninety people a day um, are people commit using guns to commit suicide. And you know, one of the things that infuriates me um, is people will so often say, "Well, those people would find other means to kill themselves," and that's not the reality. That's not what the research shows us. Um, it's pretty clear that uh, suicide is a treatable disease and that we can prevent people from um, committing suicide, but when they use a means as lethal as a gun, they rarely have a second uh, a second chance to do so. 90 a day is, is certainly an alarming statistic, and I'm glad you brought up the fact that suicides go into that number as well. I think that you know many people aren't privy to gun violence on a regular basis. Um, It's certainly certain demographics that are in certain places in Maryland that are. And that kind of leads into my next question. You know, obviously safety for all Marylanders is of main concern to your organization. Can you just talk a little bit more about the importance of involvement by all Marylanders, regardless of where you live in in this movement? I mean, I think if you you care about... um, your neighbors in Baltimore City um, who are being essentially slaughtered at alarming rates, then you should care about gun violence prevention. If you care about um, uh, issues of mental health and helping prevent suicide, which is a which is a completely preventable um, condition, then you should care about gun violence prevention because it's, part, it's all wrapped up in that. Um, you know, if you care about your kids going to schools and um, not wanting them to live in a world that's sort of locked up, um, then you should care about gun violence prevention. Um, you know, I, I don't want people to begin to sort of respond to this with the idea that you know, if we just barricade ourselves or put up bars or guards, you know, that we'll be able to protect ourselves. First of all, it's not the world I want my children to live in. And, um, you know, it's, it's not the way we should respond to this. We really need to be looking at this um, across all demographics and making sure that all people have the same access to safely assist to safety um, regardless of their um, socioeconomic class or their race. And we as a community need to be committed to making sure that happens. And we as Marylanders need to be make sure make sure that we're committed to making sure that that, um, that, that all Marylanders have access to that safety. And you know, unfortunately, Maryland is no stranger to gun violence, um, especially in the past few years and in the past couple of weeks. How do actions of the Trump administration and Congress, whom 
haven't been outspoken about the ways to prevent gun violence. How, how did their actions affect your organization and Marylanders in general? Listen, I mean, Trump's not going to do anything to help us. And on a federal level right now, not much is happening, nor is it going to happen. But I think that's precisely why Marylanders is so important. I mean, we last year passed four of our five bills in Annapolis, and it's essential that you have these local, um, small, grassroots organizations pushing for change at a small level because we don't want the Trump agenda to take over. So you have, you know, you have us here on the ground. We're working really hard to make sure that does not happen. Um, And uh, I'm a firm believer in change taking place in sort of small environments and communities leading that change. And I think we're seeing that in Baltimore City. Um, And I think that, uh, you know, Maryland has uh, made great progress in the gun violence prevention um, arena. I'm glad you mentioned some of the bills that were passed last session. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the current political climate regarding gun violence prevention in Maryland, as well as kind of review those bills that passed last year? Sure. So um, our legislative session, which I'm sure as your listeners know, um, basically runs January through February. And in the midst of our legislative session, um, the Stoneman Douglas shooting in Florida, the Parkland, um, Florida shooting happened up in the high school. Um, and as I'm sure everyone is aware, there's a tremendous outpouring of energy. Um, these young students at Marjorie Douglas led this amazing call um, for change. And that certainly had an impact on what happened, I think, in Annapolis um, and led to a lot of passion in Maryland. So um, the four bills we had uh, passed this session, uh, you know, I think in some part was in response to that um, outpouring of um, rage and anger that people would, someone would go in and, and kill all of these children on Valentine's Day. Um, that said, I, I just want to caution people because we can't allow our rage to only surround these momentary incidents. Um, we have to maintain this passion. We have to keep up this fight. It can't only um, last as long as our sort of uh, media memory <laughs> does. Uh, this is something that people in Baltimore deal with every day. You know, I was looking, um, you know, less, it will be two weeks this Thursday that um, the shooting occurred in uh, Annapolis where five people were killed in a newspaper office. And um, in the course of a week in Baltimore, in the last week in Baltimore, there have been 10 people shot and killed. And there's one little girl, um, Taylor Hayes, who's seven years old, who's currently fighting for her life in um, the shock trauma unit in Baltimore right now. These things happen all the time in our communities, and our backyards, and we can't just let our guard down and the media stop talking about it. Um, so what did we do to answer your question about legislation? Um, there, there are a few, uh, I'll, I'll talk about our successes first. Um, 
we passed we passed a bump stock and rapid fire triggery um, a rapid fire trigger accessory ban. Um, it is the only uh, piece of legislation in the country that bans not just bump stocks, which was the accessory used in the Las Vegas shooting um, that killed almost 60 people. The concert it bans not only that accessory but any sort of um, copycat accessory that would be uh, that would uh, allow for a rapid fire mechanism. Um, we instituted an extreme risk protective order. Uh, this order is, I think, particularly um, important in light of the shooting in Annapolis. There's been some miseducation um, on what that bill will do. It will go into effect in October. Um, a lot of people have been talking about how the shooter in Annapolis bought his guns legally, which is completely true, and how the charges that were brought against him of stalking-related charges did not um, make him a prohibited purchaser or possessor of guns, which is true. Um, and uh, the take that some um, journalists have had is that, that there's really no way to prevent this individual from having access to guns. What they um, neglected to mention was that this ERPO really would put law enforcement, the ERPO bill, the extremist protective order bill, really would give law enforcement the ability to remove guns from um, the homes of individuals like the one who killed five people almost two weeks ago in Annapolis. Um, it, it would allow um, intimate partners, people living with individuals, family members, medical professionals, and law enforcement agents um, who thought that an individual was a risk to themselves or others, which this man clearly was, um, to petition a judge to seek an order to remove guns from that person's home. Uh, we also have, we also passed a funding bill that would um, provide funding for evidence-based gun violence prevention programs like Safe Streets and Cure Violence and Ceasefire Models. Um, Safe Streets is sort of a program where individuals who have credibility within the community, often they're individuals who have um, themselves been involved in um, illicit or illegal criminal activity at one point in their past, um, come back to their community after rehabilitation, and work within the community to help divert um, violence and to help uh, and to help provide alternatives to violent activity. And um, it would also provide funding for hospital-based intervention programs, for instance, programs that um, would sort of um, highlight an individual who would come in with a gun-related injury and would make sure that individuals followed with social work care um, post-discharge to try to prevent any retaliatory um, uh, problems within the community and to provide support for that person. Um, and I also want to note that we, as an organization, we are the only organization um, that works to fight bad bills within Annapolis. So, um, you know, there were probably well over 30 bad bills introduced by the gun lobby in Annapolis this session, and we were down there fighting all those bills, you know, bills that would put guns in schools or re reduce the number of training hours to be a holder of a concealed carry permit, those types of things. Um, and the final bill that we had passed was um, a bill that is somewhat nuanced and um, may speak a little bit to some of the 
the gubernatorial races, the gubernatorial race coming up here in Maryland. But it's the oversight of the handgun permit review board. And um, I'll just back up for a second because I think in order to really understand what the handgun permit review board is, um, it's important to understand Governor Hogan's um, relationship to the NRA and where he stands on this issue. So when Governor Hogan was um, running against then-candidate um, Anthony Brown, I think most people did not think Governor Hogan was going to win. And um, at the time, um, there was, a, and there remains, a board called the Handgun Permit Review Board. And in a nutshell, what this board does is people who want to be in possession of a concealed carry license in Maryland um, and that's a license that would allow you to carry a gun on your person, um, they have to apply to the Maryland State Police. The Maryland State Police can deny that individual um, the right to have that license, that they're the, they're the entity that decides who should and who should not be in possession of this license. If the individual is denied, they have the right to appeal that denial. And we totally support an individual's right to appeal that denial. Um, but after Governor Hogan became governor, um, the board was, there's no one on the board at that point. So he had the opportunity to appoint all five individuals to the board. These individuals are not trained. They're, they have no legal training. They have no expertise in, in guns. Um, they're totally just citizen appointees. Governor Hogan appointed all five. We monitored the board. We monitored their decisions and saw an increasing and alarming number of um, overturns of the Maryland State Police decision. Um, you know, our records were showing almost a tripling of the number of decisions um, made by the Maryland State Police that these individuals were saying these people should be in possession of guns. And to be clear, like this. These reasons for the board deciding were things like an individual coming in and saying, like, I'm afraid ISIS is going to attack me. Um, you know, there was no clear, I mean, our, our law is very clear that like, you have to have a clear threat made against you to be in possession of a gun or you have to be carrying significant amounts of valuable goods. Like, a fear that ISIS may or may not attack you is, is not a valid, a valid risk. Um, so we proposed a bill that would move the appeals process to the um, Office of Administrative Hearing, which already exists. It already hears gun-related appeals. Um, for instance, our handgun qualifying license, um, they hear those appeals. And it's heard by a judge, someone who's well-educated um, and knows what they're talking about. Um, so the process of the, the bill um, going through the various committees and things, we were not actually able to abolish or to remove that um, decision-making process over to the Office of Administrative Hearings, but we, what we were able to do was provide better oversight of the board so that individuals um, on the board had to provide better record-keeping, um, had to be more accountable for their decision-making process, and basically it will allow us in future years to really see whether or not there's clear undermining by Governor Hogan. Now, why is this really important when it comes to Governor Hogan? Um, we know Governor Hogan has an A-minus rating from the NRA. We don't know why Governor Hogan has that A-minus rating.
uh, a month before he was elected, a group of women and I went to his office every Tuesday requesting that he release his NRA questionnaire. Um, he refused to do it. Every Tuesday we'd go up, and every Tuesday he would give us donuts, but he would never release his NRA questionnaire. And all we were saying is, listen, Governor Hudson, we know the NRA gave you this questionnaire. We know that they gave you an A- rating based on your answer to these to the, to the questions on the questionnaire. We, um, as your possible future constituents, just want to know where you stand on these issues and why won't you let us know. Um, to this day, he's not released those answers. And what we heard sort of through networks and some reporting in various newspapers was that he was making promises to people that he would undermine our existing laws through executive appointments. It would undermine our existing laws expressly through things like the appointments he made to the Handgun Permit Review Board. So that's why the Handgun Permit Review Board is so crucial and so important because it, um, it, really, it really is a very clear way for our governor to undermine all the good work we have done here um, without it being so um, explicit or apparent or really making him look like he is uh, on the wrong side of this issue. Right, and I'm I'm glad you brought up Hogan. Um, as you know, Ben Jealous recently won the Democratic nomination, and we'll be running against him in the fall. Do you have any idea of his stance on gun violence prevention? Well, you know, we applaud um, Mr. Jealous for um, not taking NRA funds. Um, you know, I, I he. Um, also made a call there. Right now there is a pack of governors that are uh, belong to um, a group that supports basically like watching to make sure where where guns, it's called States for Gun, the States for Gun Safety Coalition. It's a multi-task force um, that will trace the sale and use of out-state guns that are used in crime. And um, this coalition of governors, it's governors from Rhode Island and New York, but also Massachusetts, like a Republican, Charlie Baker, the governor of Massachusetts, the Republican um, governor. And I know that Ben Jealous made a call for Governor Hogan to um, join that coalition. And it would be my hope that whomever our governor is, that they would join that that coalition of um uh, you know, a nonpartisan coalition of governors asking for very reasonable, um, you know, just research into making sure we understand where these guns are going and how they're being diverted to the under, underground market. So it's a really important um, issue that needs to be tracked, and I don't know why our current governor wouldn't be on board with that. I see. And just circling back a little bit, I wanted to ask, what is the current climate in terms of gun violence in Maryland? Is is it increasing or decreasing in the state? Yeah, so we, um, the report has come out recently based on, in 2013, Maryland was the only state, a lot of states after the Sandy Hook tragedy, um, tried to respond with really meaningful legislation to address that horrific tragedy. And in 2013, Maryland was one of the few states that did so with the Firearms Safety Act. And there's three key components to that act. 
Um, one is magazine capacities limited to 10 rounds. Um, the second is there's a ban on most assault-style weapons. And three, and most importantly, is um, there is a licensing component. So if you want to buy a handgun in the state of Maryland, you have to have a handgun purchasing purchaser license before you even walk into the store. You have to, um, and, 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 and applying for that license, you have to prove that you're at least 21 years old and you're a lawful resident of the United States. You have to apply for a license as a law enforcement agency within your within Sugar County. Um, you have to have a background check. And you have to, um, and I think this is the most key element of this, is you have to submit fingerprints connected to that background check. Um, why this provision is so important is that fingerprint-based background check really helps in the reduction of what we call straw purchasing. And straw purchasing is when, let's say, I am someone who has a criminal record and I am not a, 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 someone who can legally purchase a gun in the state of Maryland. But I ask you, and you are illegally able to purchase a gun for me, and I give you all the money, and you go and purchase that gun for me. If you then purchase that gun and give it to me, that's called a straw purchase. That's an illegal purchase. You can't legally do that. A fingerprint background check has been shown to significantly reduce the number of straw purchases. In Connecticut, when the law was introduced there, over the course of 10 years, the number of homicides went down by 40%. Oh. In Missouri, when they repealed the same law, homicides went up by um, 25%. Similarly, um, suicides in um, Connecticut went down by 15%, and suicides in um, Missouri went up by 16%. So we, we had this law in 2013, and recently Daniel Webster and a group of um, researchers at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, um, a Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins, released a study showing that that law has been, um, has reduced by about, a study of, um, of men on probation and parole um, suggested that they were 40% less likely um, to go out and buy or just even have access to a gun um, because of that law that really reduces strong purchasing. And, and I just want to remind everyone, too, like, there is no such thing as a, as, I mean, people talk about legal guns all the time. Like, every single gun in this country starts out as a legal thing. Like, it always starts out as a legal purchase. Illegal guns become illegal because people start diverting them into the underground network. We in Maryland have really strong laws that help prevent that. The problem we have, and we've seen, you know, over 60% of the guns used in commissions of crime in Baltimore City coming from out of state, because out of state, it's very easy to divert guns um, to the underground market. So that's why this coalition that um, Mr. Jealous asked Governor Hogan to join, the States for Gun Safety Coalition, that's forming this task force to trace the sale and use of out-of-state guns is so essential. Because if we can get a better understanding and, and of how these guns are coming from, and they're mostly coming from Virginia and West Virginia and Pennsylvania, states that have kind of not particularly strong laws, 
Um, and if we can encourage those states to adopt legislation that mirrors what we have in Maryland, we can make a huge impact on what's happening in Baltimore. Um, because you're right, like the, the deaths are still there, but we have to look at what's outside of our state boundaries to understand why, why those deaths are continuing to occur. How is Maryland a model for gun control and gun reform throughout the nation? Well, the Maryland Firearm Safety Act I mentioned earlier with our um, background um, check and fingerprint-based licensing requirement is a clear model for the rest of the country and I think would be really helpful as we talk about ways to divert illegal guns to the underground market. Um, And I actually, you know, people often said, oh, that license is so hard to get, it's like impossible. I actually went through the process of taking the four-hour training course and doing it. It it was not hard at all. I I have to say, I was really nervous because I said there's live ammo and everything. It it was very easy, and the live ammo was basically discharging a gun into a box that police use for discharging jammed guns. It was a simple, simple course, and there's no test or target practice as far as, like, having to get a gun, shooting a gun at a particular target and missing or not missing. Mm -hmm. Um, The other place that we are um, true leaders um, is with our child access prevention and um, due in large part to legislation that now Senator Van Hollen and then State Senator... Um, Van Hollen uh, proposed early in his career um, that will that just helps keep guns um, out of the hands of children by ensuring their the adults in their lives lock them up properly and store the ammunition properly. Uh, it's interesting. I, I live in um, a very rural part of Maryland, and um, my children have to. Uh, there, I think the, the county regulates. Um, safety on everything from, like, internet access to fire and, and guns. And my daughter came home with this Eddie the Eagle propaganda. It's basically the NRA's teaching um, for children on gun safety. Um, the NRA believes the burden is on the child, that the child should learn um, how to protect themselves. Uh, my feeling is that that uh, burden should be on the parents and the way that our laws in Maryland work is the burden is on the adult. The adult in the home who owns the gun is responsible for the safe and proper storage because our laws um, require that and because we follow through. And so often people will say, well, we shouldn't follow through because that adult already had like a horrific tragedy and already lost somebody. Well, the reality is like, that is a, it is a crime, you know, leaving that access out, leaving that gun easily accessible to a child. And because we as a state have taken um, measures to follow through on our laws, we really we have one of the lowest rates of child, um, uh, what we call unintentional um, shooting. Uh, so we can definitely serve as a model in that realm. You've mentioned Baltimore, uh, and I know that much of your efforts are concentrated in Baltimore and in inner city. Um, what other ways do you educate citizens and lawmakers about the importance of gun violence prevention? And how would you respond to opponents who 
basically say that there's nothing you can do about it. Like the poets who say there's nothing you can do, I, I would return to that study that I mentioned with Michigan and Connecticut, which clearly demonstrates how the fingerprint-based background checks really can reduce not just murders but also homicides. Like that's a clear, um, you know, there, there are clear links there between um, the regulation of the uh, guns and how we can really effectively reduce violence within our communities. Um, with respect to our legislators, I think we really need to educate lawmakers to understand the toll that gun violence takes on their constituents. Um, you know, I, I, I think sometimes um, people become so focused on the high media um, incidents, and they're important. You know, Sandhooks, the Parklands, um, the Orsh Theater shootings, those are important and significant events, and they're tragedies. And, you know, and I personally know people who've been touched at all those, and, and my heart breaks for all those families touched by that. But lawmakers need to understand that it goes, and this goes not just for lawmakers, this goes for everyone, like, that the shootings go beyond those high media um, incidents. That, um, that, again, this is happening every single day in Baltimore City, um, and that we, as uh, a country again. I just, I, I, I really want people to think like, why is it that we only respond really forcefully when it's largely children of privilege that are white that are shot? We really need to question ourselves as a country and to think about how we um, can really respond to the needs of people who have been dealing with gun violence for a lot longer. Oh, you know, long before Sandy Hook occurred, and how we can help um, people within those communities um, through legislation and grassroots outreach. What can our listeners who want to get involved in helping to prevent gun violence in their communities, what, what can they do? Well, first you can go to our website, Marylanders Prevent Gun Violence, um, mdpgv.org. You can sign up for our um, newsletters and alerts. Um, you know, we need your support. Even if that's just clicking on our Facebook page or quickly clicking on our Twitter, all the uh, links are on our, um, our, our, our um, Marylanders uh, webpage. Even just following us or sharing with other people. Uh, we also need financial support. I mean, that's just the reality. In, in order to continue doing this work, it, it costs money. Donations help tremendously. In order to get those four bills um, passed last session, there's a huge team that, and they're up there all hours of the day, you know, until two in the morning um, working on that. And we need help making sure that happens. But also, um, next January, when the legislative session comes back into play, and if you sign up for our newsletters, you'll be alerted to when the states are, we need warm bodies in the room. You know, because the NRA and the gun lobby, those guys, and they are mostly guys, um, they come out, you know, they show up. They're a small percentage of our population, but they're a vocal part of our um, community, and they care about this, and they are single-issue voters. And I'm not suggesting that your listeners become single-issue voters, but I am saying, if you care about some of the things I've been talking about in the course of our conversation, 
gun violence needs to become an issue you vote on. And, um, you know, it's, you need to be in Annapolis telling your um, delegates and state senators that you care um, because it matters. I mean, I can think recently there was a bill we had that we thought we were losing ground on, and we sent out a list, you know, an email to our um, member list, and we said, please, you know, we just need you to call this particular state senator's office and ask for his support. And I got a call from the secretary there, and she said, okay, can you just call your members off? Like, we will support it. We're just being inundated by calls. And I was like, oh, this is great. And then I was like, so, I care if the, how many, like, how many calls are, like, how many calls have you gotten? And she's like, oh, you know, like, I don't know, 15. And I was mm-hmm. like, wow. Like, 15, like, changed their mind, right? Like, wow. it doesn't take a lot of people. Like, I, I was imagining, like, oh, gosh, you've got, like, 100 people calling. Mm-hmm. No, it didn't take a ton of people. But once they start getting those calls, they listen, you know? And I think, again, that's the difference between the federal level and the, and the state level is, here in Maryland, we have pretty good state representation, perhaps with the exception of Congressman Harris on the Eastern Shore. But for the most part, um, on this issue, uh, you know, our, our delegation at the federal level is doing a, a good job. Um, and, you know, Kristen Hong has definitely been a champion of this issue since his early days in the state house when he, um, you know, promoted some child access prevention laws that now makes Maryland a leader in child access prevention. But, um, so we can't do much on the state level as far as, like, calling our representatives, but we can make a huge impact when we call our local representatives. And those local laws are often the building blocks for federal legislation. It's important. If we can start showing how local laws can do important things here, then we can really start um, making inroads. Um, at the at the national level. Well, Liz, thank you so much for joining us and talking about gun violence prevention in Maryland. Um, if you could just repeat the website for our listeners, but I uh, just wanted to thank you for, for joining us. Well, thank you so much, Ruth. I really appreciate you asking me to be here. And yeah, we're mdpgv.org. Um, you can just Google Marylanders prevent gun violence and we'll pop up. And again, if you go there, I'll have links to all of our Twitter and Facebook and all that sort of information as well. So thank you. And um, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you all. That was Liz Bannock, Executive Director of Marylanders to Prevent Gun Violence. If you want to learn more, visit their website at www.mdpgv.org. As always, thanks for listening to the Our Maryland Politics and Policy Podcast. See you next time.